The Guardian. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. <laughs> Welcome to Politics Weekly. I'm Allegra Stratton. And I'm Tom Clark. And joining us today is our old friend in the pod, Jonathan Friedland. But we're also delighted to welcome into the pod the first of five Labour leadership runners and riders who will be joining us over the summer. Andy Burnham, the Shadow Health Secretary, is generously priced by the bookies at 16 to 1 to become Gordon Brown's permanent replacement. Now, we'll be asking Andy about his leadership campaign later on, but let's kick off with an extraordinary development on the other side of the channel, where French MPs have just voted to ban the full face veil or niqab that's worn by some Muslim women. Johnny, can you explain why they've done this? Is it feminism or is it a weird kind of xenophobia, patriarchy? Well, they would. Oh, the French, I think, would say it was neither of those things. They would say it's about Frenchness and uh, French secularism, uh, which is absolutely bound into the Constitution of the Republic. The notion that, is that they say in order to make sure no religion is advantaged, there should be no religion in the public sphere. And, uh, and they define the public sphere as even the streets you walk on. Uh, and so they f- would, I think, justify to themselves that it's a fully egalitarian measure and that's why there's support for it on the left and then there is this extra feminist uh, dimension which says it's enslaving and inhibiting for women to wear it or be forced to wear it and therefore the mechanism they've gone for is to ban it but the um, uh, you know obviously to, to, non, to non-franchise it looks very deeply illiberal but the French start from a different position this this notion of state uh, sanctioned secularism and uh, that allows them to eliminate as far as they say all kinds of religious expressions and they wouldn't feel it's discriminatory. They would say the same about wearing a big crucifix in uh, in, a, in, a, in a French state school also would be uh, barred. But I think this probably crosses a few lines. But Andy, I mean, come on, if uh, if you were to ban, I don't know, makeup on the grounds that women felt obliged to wear it because we lived in a patriarchal society, you'd get an absolute outcry from British women, wouldn't you? Of course you would, and rightly so. And I think this move will really appall. It appalls me, actually. I think it, it is intolerant. And you've also not, you think of the principles of the French constitution, and Jonathan is right, obviously, to, to, to talk about that different tradition. But you've also got to think about the world in which we are currently living and how it's changed in this century and of the, the tensions that there have been between um, between Islam and, and Christianity. And, and in that context, I think this is a deeply illiberal move that will fan the flames of, of resentment and um, and uh, fanaticism and, and, and you know, I would understand why people would feel that. It is uh, something that I think runs completely against the grain of British society. We do believe in uh, freedom to express religious views and um, I think, you know, it, it worries me what the effect of this will be in Europe in the long term. Do you think it would ever happen here? Never. I can't imagine it would ever happen here, nor, nor should it. We did it, didn't we? We have our own flirtation with this issue and Jack Straw wrote that column in his local paper saying that he did ask people who came with the niqab, uh, the full face veil to remove it. But I think probably even he would draw the line of banning it. I would certainly hope so. That was because he can't hear in one ear. That's right. And he needs to be able to see that people's the lips moving in order to partly uh, be able to understand what they say. But anyway, that was a even... Even that, I thought, was pretty illiberal to raise that because it created or added to at that time. It was straight after the Heathrow terror alert in the autumn of 2006. It added to a climate of intolerance. And this is going on across Europe. And it's, it's quite chilling. I have to say, somebody, you know, as, as a Jew, I find that the echoes are very unpleasant, that there's Switzerland saying you cannot build minarets. You know, Jews, remember, there, was, there were bans on, how high, on synagogues and how high they were allowed to be built. It mustn't be higher than a church in some countries, etc. 
And then this, um, and the notion now that, you know, if you cannot see the face, and I'm just picturing ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who have the full beard being told, well, now you're going to have to shave that off. There's just a very unpleasant echo. There's a very unpleasant resonance to the idea of telling people we don't like these religious expressions. I don't like it particularly. I wouldn't want anyone in my family to wear a niqab, but it's their religious freedom to do it. And the, uh, the last point I would make on it is the absurdity of it. Can you imagine the arrest scene? 2,000 people, in 2,000 women only wear them in France. How are you going to manage that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, it's that intellectual basis you began with. I mean, if it, that is not how people will see it, is it? They will take this as a challenge to their culture, their freedom, and it will really, I think, uh, drive a wedge between people. And I've, my family um, are, are, my wife's family are Dutch, and I've been watching what's been going on in Dutch society for the last 10 years, also in Belgian society. And, you know, Europe, traditionally um, uh, open-minded Europe, has really changed, actually. And Holland, the whole pim for town phenomenon, I think really kind of has, has kind of polarised parts of European society that we would have always thought of as being very open-minded and cosmopolitan. And there is a real change going on in that European liberal tradition. And I don't like the look of it at all, in fact. And there's a, a move towards very narrow-minded nationalist-based politics in the heart of Europe. Look what's happening in Belgium. It's becoming a very fractured uh, country. And it's uh, it's worrying, actually. And this the French move, I think, will only add to that sense of division and politics being run on kind of uh, religious and nationalist lines and it's not good. I'd be amazed if the European Court of Human Rights actually does allow it. I mean, just because it is, it seems such a direct violation of freedom of religious expression. So we'll have to see what happens to it. Well, let's wait and see. But now the big policy announcement back at home this week, perhaps the biggest in the short history of the coalition, was the overhaul of the NHS, unleashed by the Health Secretary, Andrew Lansley. Mr Speaker, today's reform set out a long-term vision for an NHS which is led by patients and professionals, not by politicians. It sets out a vision for an NHS empowered to deliver health outcomes as good as any in the world. I commend this statement to the House. Andy Burnham, indeed. What did you make of it? Right now, you were <laughs> well, just. Well, I was growling, just... <laughs> actually. And I, you know, what do I make of it? It makes me want to weep. I think this is the most dangerous white paper on health reform I have ever read. And I'm not saying that, you know, because it's just, oh, it's what opposition politicians say. I, I really mean that. And, you know, the moves that we took to kind of get the NHS working for patients, to bring down waiting lists, it took blood, sweat and tears to do that. Hard graft on lots of levels. And just to have this reform where you just wipe it all away and it's a great big free-for-all and you hand over the commissioning function, lock, stock and barrel to to, to GPs. Uh, nothing against GPs, but most of them don't come into being a GP to handle a multi-million pound budget. And uh, I just think it is flawed on practically every level and it will it will end the NHS as we know it. And that's a big statement, but I believe that to be true. Can you speak up on one thing though? Because uh, you say it's high risks, but on the Today programme this morning, you were saying that as compared with Andrew Lansley, firstly, that you'd uh, put less protection in place on the health budget and secondly that you thought he was being too rigid in protecting particular hospitals he's saying no hospital's going to close yeah well actually the change that the nhs needs right now is not in structures and organization it is on the ground it's the efficiency that it the efficiency challenge is everything and that the, a reorganization is the last thing the nhs needs right now it needs to be able to focus on getting more value for for money and that is about not having patients going in and out of hospital but treating people better in the home and in the community so it's precisely the wrong time to put a moratorium on hospital reconfiguration because which, the way which the, strip 
away jargon might mean some hospitals closing or wards closing. Yeah, and we did some very difficult things in government. Uh, in my own area, we changed maternity and children's services. Uh, in the northeast, there was a big hospital reconfiguration around Hartlepool. And this was not easy stuff, but it's about making NHS services uh, fit for modern times. And that is doing less in hospital, more in the community and more in the patient's home. That is the way to a sustainable health service over the course of this century. And you've talked about the NHS being unring-fenced and that being one way that, that, that pots of money could be found. And you've said that that would be in freezing pay. What, what, what sort of scale of, of savings have you estimated it could, could come up with? Well, we had a similar um, figure Allegra, for the um, savings in the NHS, 15 to 20 billion. So we were working on that uh, on that uh, efficiency challenge. Or... No, that was over the course mm. of the spending review that's that's coming. I have said that I would stick with just keeping the NHS budget protected in real terms. Now, the coalition are promising an increase. And the reason why I've said I think that is unbalanced and dangerous is because it means other services services upon which the NHS depends, such as uh, council-run social care, will fl- face cliff-edge cuts to pay for that real-terms increase in the NHS. And, you know, if, if hospitals can't discharge older people into the community because the support isn't there, then the NHS stops working. So it's flawed thinking. I just wonder how easy it's going to be for Labour and for you to be making this case, just because there will be a political obstacle, won't there, which is you know, in this time of declining trust, one of the most trusted groups are doctors and GPs. And the headline from Lansley's white paper is that now it will be GP, uh, GPs who will be in charge of their own budgets and uh, moving away from bureaucrats, the most hated group of people, class of people in the country, bureaucrats and managers. After journalists. After journalists. I mean, they're not, in fact, they're not. <laughs> but, in, politicians. but in political rhetoric, you know, it's an easy target, bureaucrats and managers. So when he be on to a sort of quite populist winner there with Andrew Lansley saying, I'm moving away from managers... GPs will be in charge of their own affairs. Maybe he might get one or two good headlines this week, but when the service starts to understand the full implications of this, the wiping away of all of the public accountability that comes with primary care trusts, SHAs, the national standards that came with weighting uh, targets, because they are guarantees to the public, aren't they? I mean, you know, you have that guarantee and therefore you are empowering the individual patient when the patient goes to the NHS. Four hours, you won't wait longer in an A&E. 18 weeks is the maximum for your operation. What he has done is handed all of the power right back to the professionals and the system. And the system can now say to the patient, well, you know, you'll wait as long as we tell you to. And that is a fundamental um, mistake, in my view. And it, uh, it's, it's, it's a producer interest. And the other thing, just quickly to say, is the most hated thing from the public in terms of health service delivery is a postcode lottery. And, you know, we are going to see that writ large now, a huge variation in waiting standards and uh, treatment. And are you, your government came up with some public-private initiatives. I mean, are you sort of now suggesting that in retrospect some of those reforms were also wrong? Or are you saying that they should have gone no, go no further than what we did? No, I think lots of the reforms we did were right. PFI, I would defend pretty resolutely, um, even though it does come under attack, because we built 120 plus hospitals. And quite frankly, we wouldn't have been able to do that without the um, the PFI mechanism. Uh, we also brought in the private sector to add additional capacity to the NHS, and we wouldn't have been able to deliver the 18-week target. And let's Let's just look at that. I mean, that was a huge achievement to deliver that 18-week target. What I said was when I came in as health secretary, that era of huge expansion in the NHS 
was effectively coming to an end with the change in the in the funding situation and that we were going to have to enter a period where we re-engineered health services. That, that takes me back to the point about hospital reconfiguration. We were going to have to look again at the patient pathway to get more money out. And in those circumstances where you're asking existing NHS services to change, I said it was right to give them the security of saying, no, the NHS is the preferred provider. It gets the first chance to change. Uh, and if it can't change satisfactorily, then we'll bring in other providers. What we have here is a free-for-all where they're just saying any willing provider. Johnny, you've written this week that the thing that chills you most about the Landley stuff is the kind of corporate takeover privatisation angle. Can you see in what Andy's saying there a kind of philosophical difference between Labour and Conservatives or do you think it's pretty difficult? Well I think it could be but I think it's muddied a bit by Allegra's question which is that it's not as if Labour didn't go down some of these roads themselves. Now they didn't go down as far or as fast but for example the notion of uh, the, the Foundation Trust Hospital that can uh, lend some of its beds for private use. Um, that, now, you know, that's, that's, Labour did that and therefore it can't be an argument of principle uh, against that key part of the Lansley package. It, well, instead, you'll have to get into degree, scale, speed, which is slight for, certainly for the voters, I think, is just less clear-cut than being able to say, we in principle think you shouldn't be opening the door to that kind of private uh, yeah, Jonathan, uh, you've involvement. Got, you've got a point. It's not totally pure, and, but ever since its creation, the private sector was contributing to the NHS uh, so and GPs it's always, themselves always yeah of course and GPs themselves so it's always been there the question is what is the core of the NHS and what is the public accountability within the NHS and what are the national standards that are set by democratically accountable ministers I mean that is the difference it's the it's the N in NHS is what I would say is a really important question here Labour had a very clear view that the National Health Service should have basic standards that are applicable everywhere, uh, largely delivered by a core publicly owned and publicly accountable health service, because you can't have a, a situation because health services are so critical, they have to be guaranteed by the public sector. There was a line in this white paper that said no organisation will get a bailout. Um, and they're basically saying that NHS hospitals will be allowed to fail. Now, this is a fundamental philosophical shift in the way we've managed and run our health I think that's right. I think the things that will cause big political problems for them down the road are any kind of uh, either a hospital or a GP cluster closing, going bust, that will be massive. Postcode lottery, I agree with you. I think the voters are very intolerant to that, except when it's happened through devolution and they have some, some degree of control. In other words, people now tolerate the idea that there will be differences in Scotland or in Wales because you have politicians in control of that. But the idea that there will be differences between you know Cheshire and Surrey because of just where you live and you don't have any control over that, I think people will get very angry about that. Um, uh, and the other thing I think that perhaps we, we haven't focused on but is the idea that in these GP consortia, these clusters of surgeries, there will be and could be big private partners. That's not something that was going to happen under Labour and it will be now. So I think there'll be a reaction to all those things. Absolutely. Now I have to break up the, the health PhD seminar and move us from <laughs> policy to personality and what a personality. Guess who is once again dividing opinion on Labour benches? Peter Mandelson and particularly his memoir, The Third Man. For anyone yet to witness the extraordinary advert he's currently running, here's a little bit of it. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom... And for many years, it was ruled by two powerful kings. But the kings wouldn't have been in power without a third man. The people called him the Prince of Darkness. Don't know why. But this fairy tale wouldn't have a happy ending. But that's for next time. Andy, would you let him read your kids a bedtime story? Um, uh, not on that form, no. And uh, I just think, you know, what 
depresses me actually now is that now is a time for a new generation in the Labour Party to step forward, set out their stall. I'm doing that. And actually, I'm saying it is because we need a clean break from all of this self-indulgent factionalism that we've had that I'm standing for the leadership. And I just find it depressing, actually, though, that, that other voices are coming back in trying to dominate the headlines when really the Labour Party needs to move on to a new generation. Do you think this is what differentiates you from the other candidates without kind of wanting to dig into them too much? I mean, Ed Miliband, Ed Ball's very associated with Gordon Brown all the way through, David with uh, with with Tony Blair, and, and you're making a virtue of having batted for both sides. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was absolutely, uh, completely loyal to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown. Uh, and I can say that absolutely without fear of contradiction. And uh, I'm proud to have been so because I helped, in my view, sustain a Labour government for 13 years that improved life in so many ways for my constituents and the country as a whole. But I was never in the inner sanctum of either the Blair camp or the Brown camp. And I didn't like what I saw at times, which was a self-indulgence, a, a factionalism, an elitism, really, a kind of way of running the Labour Party that, quite frankly, disheartened and discouraged members up and down the country. This idea that the you know this small group could just uh, send out its edicts and parachute out its candidates, it brought the Labour Party into real disrepute. And, you know, Labour is nothing if it's not about breaking down and challenging elites. And yet it would appear that at the top of the party, we spent way too long courting business and media elites. And in the end, gave an impression to the public that uh, we had our, our priorities wrong. We were dazzled by power, money and glamour, as I've said. If you'd been Labour leader at the last election, would Labour have won the election? Well, I think you have to say that, you know, 13 years in government, a natural period of government comes to an end. And I was never one of those. When all these so that was a, that's a no? Yeah, because when there was no. Gordon Brown, I supported as leader and I supported him in trying to win the election. And I wasn't fighting my leadership campaign during the election. I was fighting an election trying to win it for Labour because I believed he was the right man to but take not, over I'm not Tony questioning Blair. your loyalty. It's just in terms of saying that there was this problem in terms of infighting. If that had been removed and you'd been in power, would, would Labour's chances have been so much better you'd have won? I think my time is now and that's why I'm standing now. I think Labour overall has to reconnect with the ordinary people and the voters that we had in 1997. I think we've become dangerously disconnected from those people, uh, partly because of the way in which the top of the party conducted itself, this kind of, you know, courting of elites. And I just think that has ultimately put us in a position where people think, well, I don't know what the Labour Party is anymore, who it stands for. Does it speak up and stand for me? And I think that really came home to roost. When the recession hit, um, you know, we hadn't spoken about wealth. But you could have changed that. And actually, look at how Labour did. It didn't do that badly. It was sort of 50 seats short of being, if you had been in charge. I think you'd possibly been too hard on yourself. My judgment is is different, Allegra. I think that if, you know, when those coups were launched against Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, if uh, Labour had kind of carried that through we'd have been out of government straight away uh, that's my view and I think my responsibility to my constituents and to Labour members and to the country was to sustain a Labour government for as long as we could and uh, and I believe we did the right thing in sustaining that government for 13 years but what I did say after the election and in fact was the only person uh, bar one or two others in cabinet after that election in the final cabinet meeting 
when we were discussing a deal with the Lib Dems, I, I said very plainly, we have lost this election. It's time to, to give up and it's time to rebuild. And, um, you know, I've always, I believe to say that then was in the best interest of the Labour Party. And, um, and I believe what I'm doing now is in the best interest of the Labour Party. Can I just, I mean, you've made very plain that you think the style of politics under New Labour got wrong. It was too elitist, pit in the drifted into this language people didn't understand and you've said you'd like to change all that what about on policy though what what do you think we should have uh, seen from the last 10 years that, that was different what should change now well I think yeah we did I, I'm not denigrating our record I'm very proud of our record but let me give you a couple of examples we did a great deal to get young people into university and change uh people's life chances and I'm very very proud of that but we didn't do anything like enough to think about how the young people from the more uh, lower income backgrounds then make their way in the world beyond university and I have a real passion that comes from my own life experience that this country is still way too unequal in terms of life chances and the professions in this country uh, medicine politics journalism law finance are still dominated by a self-selecting elite and it's very hard to break in if you've not got uh, those connections and I've said you know I would um, I would change that I would make sure that all work experience all placements uh, internships were advertised and I would extend student loan um, capacity to people beyond university to try and break this cycle where young people from the most less connected backgrounds who don't have parents who will work out some free work experience and who don't know people in the editor's office how they can get on in life and that that defines Andy, my politics one of those the social care idea was turned into this death tax idea before the election are you confident you couldn't persuade your cabinet colleagues then are you confident you could get the party to come behind the idea now i think so allegra I, mean, I think this goes why didn't back. they like it before well, I think the some were kind of fear, fearful of the death tax charge. And, I, and part of my analysis is that Labour became too timid about tax. I was saying, let's take it on. This is the biggest issue facing Britain uh, in this century, the challenge, the demographic challenge. I said, let's turn this debate, let's celebrate the ageing society and let's come up with a big idea and the best traditions of Labour that could be for this century what the NHS was for the last. And all of the things that we criticise in the American healthcare system are present in the way we care for older people at the moment. So essentially, we let people pay out of their own pockets or their bank accounts according to their vulnerability. We have a dementia tax, not a death tax. And it is scandalous that we have that and we allow that to continue. So that's what I'm standing to change. What's interesting to me a bit about the whole Labour leadership contest is that I've just been listening to you now and you've said at least three things there, which I think if they were out there more would have really cut through. And the interesting thing is, why is this campaign not catching fire with the electorate? I'm just thinking the notion of you as the person who can move Labour beyond the Blair Brown era, you know, uh, beyond the sort of culture wars of the last 15 years, that should have been a very, very strong USP for you. Because as, as Tom has been saying, both Miliband's and, and Ed Balls in a way are still lumbered with some of that baggage, uh, having been, you know, aides to Blair and Brown. Yet that I don't think has really broken through. And your point about internships, I mean, it's a very radical idea. Uh, there may be a few readers of the policy inside pages of the papers that know about it, but it hasn't broken through. What can? What about ID uh, cards? That's one. Well, I'm just wondering what the what the what Labour can do and what the five candidates can do to make this contest break out and capture catch light. Yeah, that's a fair point, Jonathan. I mean, I think at, at times you know it is a bit frustrating and it's a long contest. But I'm you know building building my definition and my my approach, and it's a distinctive approach. I did tell the Guardian recently that. 
the philosophy that underpins all this is aspirational we socialism. It and it was very well reported, <laughs> I might say. Uh, but I am Along with your poke at Guardian readers. <laughs> we, we've reported that faithfully too. <laughs> I am putting out some big ideas and a philosophy which underpins them. And I'm saying that what the party needs going forward is the best of old and new Labour. Uh, and I describe that as aspirational socialism. And I think the ideas can resonate. Uh, and also, as these memoirs have come out, I've begun to say, well, it actually helps me say, well, this is precisely what I am saying. Uh, we draw an absolutely clear line underneath and so we move on. I slightly that. feel for you and your colleagues, actually, the I meaning the fellow contenders, almost generationally, which is, it just reminds me slightly of a family where the old generation just refused <laughs> to let go. You know, and I, I think there's a bit the, of that going you on. Know, yeah. the, you have the, the sort of grandparent generation or parent generation in the form of Blair and Mandelson with these books who are just not letting the younger folk um, step forward. They still a, want it to be about them. There's a bit of that. But, you know, we are, and that's why I've made a very clear uh, criticism of the Mandelson book. And uh, I, you know, I, I think it's right to do so because it's time for this new generation to have their say, make their pitch and, you know, put for their own analysis of the new Labour years, given that we all had ringside seats and I'm putting forward mine for you today. And, you know, but there is another thing when, you know, we've got to be careful, though, Jonathan, not to play the media game in a situation like this. There always is a thing like, oh, you know, let's get some headlines and let's get some kind of, uh, you know, a bit of spice into this contest. Well, actually, that might be good for the media but less good for the Labour Party and I don't think uh, we want to come through this leadership contest having kind of uh, opened out a kind of very bitter or, or bad tempered debate we actually want to come through this with a sense of of unity and uh, and, and comradeship and uh, you know I think if you look back at this point in the past where Labour has had this kind of debate it's often been characterised by recrimination and introspection and we really don't want that. Um, we really are going to have to wrap up in a second but before we do Allegra's <laughs> devised I'm a little I'm going to lean across the table and hand to him a little here. swingometer with oh left and right on it <laughs> I'm leaning because he's going to your... probably try and not answer the question but we want him to put himself on the spectrum of left to right in terms of in terms of the Labour Party not in terms of uh, oh my come goodness. on Andy you're straight talking oh, uh, <laughs> you most it. of the time most of the time <laughs> until place totally on the spot well where economically I can sometimes veer more towards the left of your curve in that I have a very very strong sense of how life is hardest for those on the lowest incomes and I have spoken a lot in this campaign about, you know, for instance, if you don't have a, uh, a job that gives you a kind of a permanent contract, you're on a short term contract, you find it hard to get credit, you uh, don't have direct debit, you pay mm. more for your electricity. You know, I, I, I'm a okay. big believer that we don't do enough to redistribute and kind of uh, help for people for so, whom life is hardest. So, so Mark, Mark is, so that's in general or that's... So sort of, sort of there-ish, I think. That's <laughs> it, that's a good answer. All right, we'll take that. Well, on, the, on more, you know, but I am quite firm when it comes to, you know, the law and order agenda. Let's, let's so say. So go on, so then, mark great. it up, mark it up. So I mean, uh, on, on more kind of, um, you know, uh, maybe... Tiny, 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 tiny. There we go. He's been honest with his steady. Averages out, he's that in the middle. Is... And I'd say thank you very much for being so frank. That's it for this week. So thanks to Andy Burnham, to Jonathan Friedland, and the producer who was Phil Maynard. I'm Allegra Stratton. And I'm Tom Clark. And thanks very much for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.